Welcome to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. I am Allie. And we have finally wrapped up our top 10 films of the year list. It is always a month-long process. You can see on Swapflix.com the 10 best movies of the year, except no substitutes. This is the official list. No other publication matters. Everyone in this room, I think, accounts for half the people who voted. <laughs> so uh, I, I wouldn't say that the list totally reflects everyone's taste. I will say that between the two podcasting contingents, there was a clear split in taste between two titles, which I find very funny. There is no cross-pollination, is there, between no, us? No, there is. There's plenty. There oh, was. Okay. There was. Yeah. There's two titles that are specific, though. Neptune Frost was voted on by members of this group. And I think Triangle of Sadness was voted on by members of the other group with no crossover, which I find kind of funny. I think the thing about it was that we all watched... watched. Neptune Frost and had our, our like discussion and I will say I got one and a half other people to watch it on the other crew, meaning that Hannah finished it and enjoyed it, but it did not make her list. And James watched half of it and got bored. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do recommend that uh, if we are like pulling for something that we use the podcast to make each other watch stuff, I cannot guarantee yeah. success, but uh, both Neptune Frost and Triangle of Sadness made the top 10 list. Um, and I think overall, you know, I'm I'm very proud of the movies. I like everything we listed. Uh, I think it's like a very well-rounded group from the year. Some like crowd favorites and then uh, some like Twitter villains uh, mixed together. So plenty to oh. celebrate and plenty to get upset Love about. It. Who are the Twitter villains? Oh, I think Triangle of Sadness for sure and men are the two that get shat on a lot for being like too obvious of like metaphors and satires. Um, and I'd say even since... Uh, the Oscars have uh, backed our Everything Everywhere is the say, biggest movie of the year choice. A lot of ours were there in the Oscars. Not Nope, though, which is a shame. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I understand the uh, the Nope fan club getting up in arms about it, not getting in for like technical stuff and maybe a couple acting choices. But like, I never feel that upset about snubs. It's not really what the Oscars are for. They're kind of like a marketing machine, not really like a official stamp of good taste so like i'm always ready to celebrate when something gets in like i know the three of us were very high on marcel the shell with shoes on yes and that got nominated for best animation like that's amazing everything yeah. everywhere all at once might seem like a oscar front runner right now because it was nominated for 11 categories which is kind of insane yeah and it's kind of amazing that a movie that weird and quirky you know it has yeah. it's like uh detractors now but like I think it's worth celebrating something that bizarre getting that kind of like official accolade and it means more people will watch it now. So Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is, you know, I love that we have another year of weird Oscars, you know. It's not quite as exciting as Parasite, but Everything Everywhere also won the Critics Choice Awards, which is like the more in my opinion, like the real award. I think you mean the Swampies are the real award. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's the closest thing to a real award other than what we uh, award, of course. Because, <laughs> um, you know, the Oscars are like like a book club. And yeah. the Critics' Choice Awards are like the Man Booker Prize. Um, I will say uh, there are two things that I saw since we last met that might have changed my particular list, but, you know, I apparently would not have changed what ended up on the Swamp Flicks list because only one of them was even in the running, uh, which was Triangle of Sadness, which I would love to talk about in a minute. But first, I would like to go ahead and speak out on behalf of See How They Run, which I did not see until after I had turned my list in. And I think that it definitely would have placed in the top 15. As with Triangle of Sadness, I don't know that that's a Twitter. But I didn't. I did not know that that's a Twitter villain. I know people were complaining about what I really enjoyed, which was "Don't Worry, Darling," but I wasn't sure what on our actual top ten was the one that you were referring to because that was the only one I really knew about as being a magnet for discourse. Say, Triangle of Sadness, Men, and "Don't Worry, Darling" were all complained about for the exact same reason, which were being like very obvious metaphor films with not a lot of subtlety. And to that, I say subtlety is boring and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I um, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. 
<laughs> oh, honey, no one paid to see under the top, as uh, Joel Schumacher would say. In the words of Garth Marenghi, yeah, oh my god. But put me in the discourse, coach, because Triangle of Sadness, if I had seen it, would have been on my top 15 list, just like men and Don't Worry Darling are. You know, I'm I, I'm not an edgelord. I'm not being confrontational for the sake of it, but I guess maybe I just feel differently about art <laughs> than the rest of the world does. I don't know. Um, see how they run is great. I won't uh, spend too much time on it simply because I did write copy about it that you can find on the website now. And I think that that speaks, I, I don't want to like cannibalize my own uh, review. Go check that out. I also did a write up on the last of Sheila and I want to bring that up real quick. Cause I've seen that since we met last, I wrote that up, but Dear readers, I hit a clue in my review for The Last of Sheila. Mm. Oh. Did you notice anything while you were editing it, Brandon? No, I did not. Well, there is a clue. I, I hit a secret message more than a clue in my review of The Last of Sheila. So go ahead, read that. Check it out. See if you can figure it out. If you do, you there's no way to contact me or us except through the website. So I, I guess do that. I'm now paranoid that I might have edited out your clue without thinking... <laughs> No, I double checked. Okay, good. Thank you. I double checked. Um, before I said anything, I made sure that it it made it to print. So yeah, uh, Triangle of Sadness. I want to talk about it, Allie. You have not seen it, right? I have not seen it yet. Oh my god, you're gonna love it. Everything I've heard about it, I'm like, oh, this this sounds so good. Well, it did win a Swampy. Yeah, it did win a Swampy. It, so it a is swampy. good. And it shared an actor with See How They Run. It's that uh, kid from Beach Rats who's the the influencer boy in uh, Triangle of Sadness. And he actually plays uh, Richard Attenborough in See How They Run. Richard Attenborough, of course, being the actor we all know as Dr. John Hammond from Jurassic Park, because we're really going to show our age here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love Triangle of Sadness. I loved how unsubtle it was. And I also loved how subtle it was at other times. I don't think that I've read any discourse about The Fly. Like, there's a very omnipresent fly throughout this movie that I don't think anybody, I mean, I haven't really engaged with the discourse, but none of the reviews I read seem to mention it. Like, when this influencer couple is on this boat and they're, you know, hot and, like, the natural light is really washing them out. Like, they actually look awful under the sun. And they're talking about this uh, workman aboard the boat who, like, has his shirt off and the woman in this couple, Yaya, she, she, you know, she jokes with her boyfriend about being attracted to this guy. And then there's a whole like thing where he he ends up getting the guy kicked off of the boat, even though he doesn't want to, or he didn't mean for it to go that far. It was a very white lotus. Um, that there's a fly that's flying around them, and that fly is in this picture so much. You hear him, or I guess I don't. I don't mean to. It might be a girl fly. I don't know. But you hear this fly. This, this in the sound mix a lot, where it's like even all the way out at sea, there's no amount of money that really protects you from nature. Not really. Um, I loved every vomitous, odious, shitting minute of it. Big fan. Big recommend from me. I will say my favorite parts are like the the British couple who really distance themselves from the fact that they make killing machines. I don't know. The final gag from that, like the punchline payoff, was a little too cute. That was maybe the one moment where I was like, okay, maybe that's a bit, uh, not even on the nose, like inside the nose. That is like fully picking the booger of that joke. Yeah, it was a, it was a Baron Munchausen punchline for sure. <laughs> um, if we want to get right down to it. But I still thought that that was very funny. I do have technical questions. Like, did they put that whole set on a big gimbal? Because it is like rocking. Like, it's actually rocking. Oh, yeah. Stuff sliding around. They jumeric it. Yeah. It made me, at the time, uh, this little trivia fact that I have is from the 90s. But at the time, Galaxy Quest was the film that had a set built on the biggest gimbal, or it was like the biggest set built on a gimbal, which is what they used to like move parts of a set around. So that they could realistically like shake up Sigourney Weaver and Tim Allen and and Alan Rickman and them. Great movie. I agree. 
uh we'll talk about it on swamp trek i'm sure one day oh, when yes. we when we need to get to that topic but this set must have been on a big rocking gimbal because it's like i loved its sparsity at times i loved its silence but i loved its motion and i i also really enjoyed the bit where all of these horrible rich people were the architects of their own downfall because what they were trying to do was some very like blue check mark white neoliberalism of like giving all of the staff like one small joy but of course what that ended up being is just like forcing everyone to stop what they're doing and get in a line and then jump off of the slide into the ocean swim back to the boat like one by one like they're coming off of an assembly line it was beautiful i loved it yeah i have a question to everyone who thinks this movie is like pretentious but empty or you know too obvious in its satire and that question is like do you not enjoy laughing with your friends like i went to the theater with james and hannah to watch this and we laughed and had a great time and we got queasy during the like rich people slipping and sliding in their own vomit and shit sequence like we were watching a jackass movie and i just had a great time you know big smile on my face thought it was very funny even if the political target is very agreeable and clean like do you not like to laugh do you need your comedies to be nuanced if the jokes are funny i don't you know yeah yeah <laughs> it went over very well in this house it was six of us who got together to watch it and it was the laughter was constant if you're gonna go for an obvious target in obvious ways what you need to do is do it so extremely that it's cathartic and yeah a lot of the recent like eat the rich satires are doing that i mean brandon cronenberg has a movie in theaters right now that is doing that exact thing but if you push far enough and you go to far enough extremes in dunking on these easy targets it's fun to watch Agreed. It's a simple pleasure, but it's still a pleasure. The last other thing that I watched was, for the first time, Heavenly Creatures. Oh, classic. It was so good. I was shocked by it. I, I couldn't believe, you know, it was one of those movies that you always hear about. Oh, it's one of the greats. You've got to check it out. You've got to check it out. And then I finally got the opportunity. And it was beautiful. If he has a better movie, it's dead alive. But if he doesn't have a better movie, I, I'll accept that argument. <laughs> yeah. Those are his two masterpieces. It's Peter Jackson. Um, it's New Zealand. It's based on a very famous case in New Zealand of uh, these two young women, uh, teenage girls, really, I mean, uh, who come into each other's lives. Uh, I did do some reading after seeing it about like the true story. And it, uh, there are definitely some derivations from the true story in fact there are characters who in the movie come across as much more sympathetic than they were sympathetic than they were in real life but yeah it's melanie linsky it's um wow it's very neat to remember melanie linsky and not the star of kate Titanic. winslet kate winslet <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's really great and the, i guess the thing i didn't know about it is that i didn't expect there to be a bunch of really elaborate fantasy sequences with like some really like horrifying looking clay creatures, which are not supposed to be, they're not villainous, but they are, they, they are very discomforting. Yeah. Cause kind of the sinister thing is that they're like recessing further and further in this fantasy world and not dealing with real life in a impulse that turns to be violent. The more they sort of shrink away. And yes, uh, both Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet are fantastic in it. They were both teenagers at the time, which is it's stunning to me. Yeah, I guess I won't say any more than that because I don't, I don't want to ruin it for you, Allie. But what have you been, uh, what have you been watching? I finally went back to the movies in the theaters. Hell yeah! I saw Skinamarink and I enjoyed it. I thought it was very scary, but I am a big one, so. Oh, it's definitely scary. I know, but like, I feel like there's so many people that are like, "Oh, it's so dumb," and I'm like, "Yes, but." You're a brave person who doesn't get scared by things. But yeah, it felt very like my childhood nightmares and night terror, sleep paralysis, sleepwalking. What is this movie? Okay. Everyone's talking about it and I don't know. So basically, it looks like a found footage movie, but it's not. And it's... This kind of a weird time capsule. It's supposed to take place in 1995, and it's about these kids, and they're stuck in this house, 
you don't know how or why and everything is out of their control and so it's very like the terror of being a kid and also the state of being like a person watching the movie because it only shows you what it wants to very 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 deliberately Mm. there's almost no dialogue you never see any characters faces yeah Doors and windows disappear. Yeah. The camera goes upside down, so characters are on the ceiling all yes. of a sudden. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I had some friends who saw it, and like a couple of them walked out, and I, I was like, "What? That's foolish." And that that is my foolish. Mind. The payoff is worth the wait. It is worth the wait very much. And it's like mesmerizing if you give into it and aren't like it sitting really there with is. your arms folded. Like, why is this doing that? Like, just sit and wait and be patient. It, it, it'll pay off. Yeah, Fair enough. It's it's it. coming to Shutter on Thursday, so I'm definitely going to yeah. check oh, it out. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely a, a hide your phone in the other room movie because yes. uh, not a lot actually happens. It's all about texture yeah. and you know feeling and yeah, like putting yourself in the mind space of being alone in your home as a child and yeah. like scared for indescribable reasons. Yeah, being alone at home, scared, and no one can help you, and you don't know the rules like mm. of what is going on. So what you're saying is it's like a cube no okay no. all right <laughs> sorry okay then the director got his start on youtube um so it's got kind of like a creepy pasta kind of feeling yeah and his okay. youtube gimmick was that he had this channel where people would comment their like childhood nightmares or like their reoccurring nightmares and he kind of did like a greatest hits amalgamation of like all these different ideas that he filmed diy yeah. Uh, in this little $15,000 movie made in his parents' suburban home in Canada. Yeah. And it's blown up and like made over a million at the box office, got a, a shutter incredible. deal. It's an experimental oh, wow. film that people are going out of their house to see, which is great. So, what you're saying is it's like a paranormal activity. Yeah. That's cool. But better. But better. Yeah. But like public reaction wise. Yeah. Public reaction wise, except I would say people like the general public is going to see it out of curiosity, but I think it's probably like 50, 50, like some of them like it and some of them don't. Whereas I feel mm, like okay. the general public, as far as paranormal activity was more positive. I would say okay. it's more Blair witch. Cause it's not dumbed down. Yeah. The way paranormal yeah. Is. It is not dumbed down like paranormal activity. You're right. All right. I'll stop trying to make comparisons for a movie I, I haven't seen. You're out of your league. Yeah. <laughs> I've got no frame of reference. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And the fact that it was made for like $15,000. And then I went to go see it in a theater, like two auditoriums away from the new James Cameron movie. It's just oh my like God. amazing. Yeah, that's great. I was like, okay, if I have to choose between seeing that or Megan, I guess I should support something real weird and cheap being at the theaters i really liked it as like a formal experiment and as like a you know i got this weird dissonance between it being set in this like sort of 80s and 90s era of like latchkey kid fears Mm -hmm. but also having this like intensely digital era like online found footage feel yeah there was something really weird and disorienting about those two things happening at once that i found like kind of fascinating and yes. it's definitely scary. I found it very tense and like unnerving. Yeah. But it, I can't say it like tapped into something like deeply emotional or innate in my brain the way it has with a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm really glad people are having that experience. And honestly, I look forward to watching it again and trying to you know get there myself. But yeah, it's undeniably cool that that movie has been this big of a success. I would love to take like a poll to see like the people who are very affected by it. You know, see if there's a correlation between them and, like, people who have had, like, night terrors and sleepwalking and stuff just to see if it's like, oh, wait, I've had this experience. This is scary. (laughs) Or if it's, like, not related at all. Because, yeah, I've heard too many people being like, it was dumb. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, that's fair. I get it. It's not for everyone at all. But I enjoyed it. And I really appreciate that it got such a wide release and that you can see it in the same movie theater as the second avatar movie is so good oh just because of the vast disparity between their budgets yeah and like i think the vast disparity between like how they're using like cinema as a medium i kind of want to find hope in the idea that like if only a few movies can be made on avatar scale Mm-hmm. a year now because you know the theatrical market's kind of dwindling a little bit yeah. or at least it's on shaky ground 
Like, if only a few of those can get made, maybe there's more space on marquees for, like, weird personal art to sneak through because they got to sell the popcorn for you to watch something. Yeah. As long as they're open. So maybe there's more room for Skin and Marink now that, like, there's not a new Marvel movie coming out every month. Yeah. I want to find hope in that. Speaking of going to see things, Brandon, have you been to see anything out in theaters recently? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I kind of only wanted to talk about stuff that y'all have already touched on a lot. Like, I've been watching a lot of noir movies to prepare for next episode, and I watched See How They Run, and I watched uh, Poker Face, which then, um, when I ran out of episodes, because they just put out the first four, then I was like, I need more. So then I watched Glass Onion. So I've, oh, I've yeah. actually been touching on Boomer territory recently, just tell us, tell running us through murder mystery stuff. Glass Onion, at least, since now we've all oh, seen uh, it. It was um, kind of terrible and my least favorite one of all the ones I just named. Sorry to no, disappoint. No, no, you, you're fine. No, that's, that, I, I've heard that opinion from many say, of my friends. This is actually kind of what I expected. I was like, mm, I don't think he's going to like it. I think uh, Poker Face is the most valuable thing Ryan Johnson has made so far, and I'm only um, halfway into whatever they're doing. So I'm not really a fan, so I'm not really the one to talk on that. I, I thought See How They Run was a lot better just because it was cute, and Searcher Run was very funny in it. Yeah. I do want to go ahead and, in my defense, say I'm not a Ryan Johnson fan either. There was that film group that we both used to be a part of. I assume you still are, but I'm no longer on that platform where they were always defending Ryan Johnson's Star Wars movie. And I don't get it. I think it was awful, too. I know that's the general... I think it made the right people mad. Yeah, I, I think so, too. <laughs> okay. It was fun to defend. I don't know. I thought it was fun. That's what I think about his movies. I'm like, I don't know. I think it's fun. Yeah. And also, he seems like a cool dude, so I'm like, eh. I don't strongly dislike the guy. Yeah. I don't even strongly dislike Glass Onion. I thought... After the first 45 minutes where a bunch of flat jokes did not land and I was getting very bored, once the actual like twists and like murder mystery stuff started piling up, I was like, okay, now I get it. This is fun. But the first hour was pretty dire and it was hard to bounce back from. But anyway, we've already touched on a lot of this stuff and I don't even really want to dwell on these things because murder mysteries are not really my genre. And uh, I don't think what I have to say is as valuable as reading Boomer's review of Last of Sheila and see how they run anyway. Oh, wow. Thank you. You know, it's not, it's not my territory. But I also wanted to bring up Skinnamarink again because uh, I watched a movie that I bought in San Francisco called Luminous Procurus. I bought this like 50-year anniversary DVD where they restored it. Um, are y'all familiar with the Coquettes at all? Uh, sort um, of, yeah. No. I, I was going to make a joke about myself being coquettish. We should just move on. <laughs> I mean, that is the joke of their name. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's also supposed to sound vulgar because they usually perform with their cocks out. Yeah. But uh, Oh, no, I have no... I'm more lost than I've ever been. Okay. So in the late 60s, early 70s, like before hippie culture was like a solidified thing, like before it was a recognizable fashion choice even, much less like a political ideology... Uh, the Coquettes were like at the forefront of that in San Francisco. There was this guy named Stephen Arnold who was a, let's say, uh, art film enthusiast and uh, programmer. So he was a visual artist in his own right, but he got famous doing these things called the Nocturnal Dream Shows at the theater in San Francisco, where he would play like Unshan Andalou and like Maya Darren films and like, you know, just like short film programs of weird shit. And people would come out very stoned, uh, often on LSD. And they added on this extra thing called the Coquettes, who were this group of proto-hippie freaks who dressed in drag, and they were the first drag queens to do that, like, glitter-in-the-beard look. So it was, like, still gender-fucked and, like, masculine at the same time of, like, being full glam. They wore a lot of old Hollywood vintage clothing from thrift stores, so, like, stuff that had gone out of fashion from the studio era. They were wearing, like, torn-up, tattered versions of like something you would see like Greta Garbo wear on screen and they mixed in a lot of nudity uh so that you're like looking at you know a femme upper body and then like hairy legs with a dick uh and like you know glitter in the beard but you know a full mug uh with a giant wig and a lot of that stuff is easy to take for granted now uh but you know they were pretty out there in their time so I bought this DVD because it was a feature-length film involving the Coquettes which I had only ever heard of them doing shorts. Apparently, Stephen Arnold himself, the guy who did the Nocturnal Dream shows that like 
platformed them as a kind of like side show act. Uh, he made a feature film called Luminous Procurus. It is gracefully a collection of vignettes and not necessarily a long narrative. There is no recognizable dialogue. Like people talk, but it's in that sort of Charlie Brown language where it's abstracted, uh, maybe even like Twin Peaks-ish, that sort of backwards track vocal thing so that you actually don't hear any words. You just hear the human voice. His childhood friend uh, is billed as Pandora, and she models these ridiculous wigs and glamorous outfits and leads these two himbos through her hippie commune where they just look at freak show acts. Some of them are just the coquettes posing in these like tableaus. It's just really beautiful to look at. And then some of it's like pre deep throat pornography. Uh, we're like, uh, it's almost funny. It's like uh, basically hardcore straight sex and then hardcore bisexual sex. And it's filmed as if like, look at this weird shit. <laughs> it's just people doing like pretty normal run of the mill bedroom stuff. But just the gorgeous bootleg drag creations of these like over the top extravagant wigs and the coquettes doing their thing. Um, and this really strange, I want to say like noise music backing track that's basically like chirps and organ flourishes on a early analog synthesizer mixed with sounds of the human voice. It's just a very bizarre movie that was obviously designed to watch on LSD. Apparently Salvador Dali was a big fan and took in Stephen Arnold as like a protege after watching it, which for someone who used to exhibit Unshanandalu, um, I'm sure was a huge victory yeah that sounds like that guy's dream yeah he won you know (laughs) so i just want to put that out there as like a weird esoteric film that um i'd never heard of before this restoration came out last year and i just happened to pick it up in san francisco i I bought a few movies that were kind of shot locally um so they were like easy to pick up at a used media store while i was out there but it was also making me think a lot of skinamarink and like the reasons i didn't like emotionally connect with skinamarink were the reasons that this one worked for me were like, it has the same level of narrative as that movie where it's just like long, quiet tableaus. And it's all about these like sound and image textures more than it is about like a story. And like, it's a vibe, you know, and the vibe is weird, (laughs) but like, because it was like this, like gender fucked glitter slathered, like Mardi Gras drag. I was like, I get this. (laughs) I was like, you know, riveted in a way that like, I kind of struggled to be with skin and rink. Yeah. So when I wrote about it, I kind of wrote about Skin and Brink just as much as I wrote about the movie I was actually talking about. So maybe that's been on my mind more than I thought it would be when I watched it in the theater a few weeks ago. Yeah, I think it really sticks with you in a way. Yeah. It's 2023, the year of weird vibes. Can we, can we just <laughs> only watch weird vibes? <laughs> yeah, we just did an episode on Shanandalu like a few episodes back in the oh, feed. Oh, wow. Okay. And nice. I was thinking about that during Skin and Brink as well mm-hmm. because. You know, there is like a surrealism to it yes. that like any experimental movie made after the 20s, you're automatically going to think back to that like foundational text. Yep. But also there's eye gore, you know, like like there's ocular gore. Yeah. But also like very pivotally, there's also like a um, nonsensical time elapse title card. Yes. That's like 500 something 20 days later. Yeah. And it's just like a weird non sequitur. Yeah. That has no actual effect on the plot or the feeling really and not in a tangible way um and you know it's hard to think of that without thinking of unshandalu yep. in its own way so i don't know i i like that there's this like experimental film continuum but like in the past you would only see this stuff in like art theaters art galleries back rooms at like movie clubs and maybe Salvador Dali's hotel room. Like you're not gonna see those movies like exhibited unless you're like plugged into some weird esoteric art circle somewhere. But like I walked into a record shop and bought a copy of Luminous Procurus. I went to you know the Canal Place movie theater, which is inside of a shopping mall, and watched Skin and Rink. You know, like yeah. this stuff is available and out there if you have an adventurous spirit. Um, I think that's really cool, like on an accessibility level, that this is like art that normal people can afford and access it's not like locked away for the rich to go to the a moma exhibit to see it you know yeah you don't have to like find all of the weird hippie people and do a bunch of drugs in their basement to watch it drugs probably would help i did watch yeah. the movie with only coffee in my system yeah um, I, I still enjoyed it but it, i assumed that i wasn't getting the full experience yeah. 
my brother and I made a film for PBS, a film of Truman Capote, who had just finished making, uh, coming out with his book, In Cold Blood. And uh, he thought of this book as the first nonfiction novel, which gave us the idea, well, let's make the first nonfiction feature documentary. Uh, a film that should be shown in movie theaters as well as television and so forth. So my brother had lunch with Truman Capote's editor with the idea of asking him what sort of subject might be of interest and, and could be worked out as a documentary. And he said, what about door-to-door Bible salesmen? What about, what about door, door-to-door salesmen? And we discovered that there were four guys in Boston, our hometown, four Irish guys, who uh, were selling the Catholic Bible. Last time, our crew, our Lanyap crew here talked, we did our vegetables and we watched uh, the tree of wooden clogs. This time, I think I'm having us eat our fruits a little bit. And I made all of us watch the uh, Cinema Verite classic by the Mazelids. I don't know. I actually know how to pronounce their last name. Brothers. Um, Salesman from 1969. I think it's pronounced the Mailsman. Yes, the Mailsman brothers. Uh, we, as this group, probably celebrate them more for, you know, Grey's Gardens. But they also made this movie and it follows a group of Bible salesmen who are traveling around trying to peddle their wares to like devout Catholics first in like the outskirts of Boston and then down in Florida around Miami. As you watch it, you slowly kind of see one of the main salesmen, Paul Brennan, the Badger, just get worn down and his luck start to fade and he just increasingly becomes frustrated with this business that he feels like is dying and isn't going anywhere until he finally leaves at the end. As it is like cinema verite, there's no narration, there's no like interview subject, interviewee, you know, none of that. It is just the camera following these salesmen day to day. But the thing is about Cinema Verde and like all of these documentaries that are just like slice of life, you're just following this person, is how like subtle and deceptively like easy it looks to take and make the story when, you know, like I was saying about Skinner Rink and, you know, we were saying about many other movies, it's just movies in general, like it is still a very, very intentional narrative and you can see it in so many beautiful beautiful sequences and I think that's part of what gets me about a lot of documentaries just in general um so what did y'all think about it well you mentioned tree of wood and clogs up top and I was thinking a lot about that movie again I don't know if it's just fresh in my mind but oh just the sort of continued unchanging strife of being poor yeah yeah. and how uh religion will suck the little money you have out of your pocket yep I mean these are not rich men who are going door to door to sell Bibles, obviously, but they are, you know, kind of parasitic off of working class Catholics yep. um, and basically just tricking them out of their money for like a shiny new version of the Bible with basically like an Oprah book club sticker slapped on <laughs> yeah. it. And uh, yeah, I just thought it touched on a lot of stuff we were already talking about last conversation. Um, I'd say the difference uh, is that Tree of Wood and Clogs is not funny. And this movie is funny yeah. in a very dark way. Yeah. Um, it's basically a sitcom, you know, it is. it's not that different from like the office or something. A lot of like glances oh at the gosh. camera, yes. like, knowing looks. Yeah. The guy you mentioned his name, but he's basically like Gil from the Simpsons, the, the salesman who can never catch a break. He's got a lot of like frustration, um, especially when he's just driving around neighborhoods oh and able gosh. to find homes yes. that had me laughing and then feeling terrible for laughing afterwards. Cause like no one's having a good time. Actual lives are being ruined in real time on camera. Yeah. And yeah, I, I had a lot of the same political anger I had during uh, Tree of Wooden Clogs, but um, I was having a, a better time suffering through it. Yeah. <laughs> There's something about this where there are no like winners here. Like Exactly, yeah. Unlike the Tree of Wooden Clogs, which 
I know that I've talked about before how I recently started watching these Siskel and Eberts on YouTube, and just last night I happened to catch their best of 1978, and both uh, Siskel and Ebert loved the Tree of Wooden Clogs, so I'm just going to put that out there. But the thing about Tree of Wooden Clogs is you have no sympathy for the landlord. You only sympathize with the people who live in like this farming community, whereas with salesmen, you feel sorry for everyone here except for their boss. Yes. Yeah, they do have to go to that conference where they're being sold on the concept of being salesmen. That's the evil. Uh, yeah, that uh, moment where it's just like, if people aren't making money, it's their fault. And it's just like, oh my god. Yeah, it's the bootstrappiest thing that I've ever heard. Yeah. It's it's sickening. And their boss, who's very chummy with them, you know, and see... He, He's the only person whose wife we see, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Because it's like he has a family. And in fact, his wife gets to come to this, like, you know, event, presumably free of charge. So he's like the next rung up on the ladder. But like, he's still chummy with them and friendly with them. But he's also like, I will fire you in an instant. It's not because I don't like you. I liked all of the men that I just fired. But you've got to put money on the barrel head here. And it's a bummer. We're a family here. But I'll fire you. Okay, yeah. as loathsome as that guy is, and as like you know, predatory as this basically pyramid scheme is, I do find it kind of refreshing the way they talk about the Bible business. Yes, like there's something very honest and open about you know selling the Bible as like an airport paperback here that like yeah, you rarely see acknowledged. It made me think y- y'all both were reminded of Tree of Wooden Clogs, but all I could think about was Marjo. I also wrote Marjo down. <laughs> yeah, because uh, very briefly, Marjo is a late 70s documentary about a guy named Marjo Gardner, who was a child preacher, like a gimmick preacher during like the late 50s revival tent religious circuit. So his whole deal is that he's in his like 20s now. He's gangly. He's not necessarily handsome or good looking. So he is on his last tour, and this is a person who has known for his entire life that, like, the evangelical tour circuit is a scam. Like, he's been working crowds since he was a child. So at no point in his entire life did he believe. So he's like, well, if this is my last rodeo, I'm going to bring along a film crew and really expose how this is, like, a money-making scheme from top to bottom. It's great. And I thought about that a lot in this, too, because, you know, uh, when you think of a Bible salesman in sort of the abstract, you do presume a certain morality and belief system. But like these men are not, you know, even though we like them and we spend time with them, they're all mm, not great in the way that like a grandparent is not great, where it's like, oh, can you just stop? saying that about the irish yeah. <laughs> like you just yeah. I, you just don't have to you don't have to say the word ev- every time um and they do and so there is something fascinating about the fact that like yes they're in a business they make no bones about the fact that it's a business just like marjo although for them they're not even having to like peddle eternal life <laughs> they just have to sell the book, which I thought was very funny that they were talking about how, you know, the kids get a tan from being in the sun and, you know, kids get good teeth just from like drinking the water with the fluoride in it. So just having the Bible in the home via exposure, (laughs) like by osmosis is going to, you know, really improve their lives and really have a profound effect on these, these kids. It's something. Yeah. Yeah. Usually when people talk about the Bible as literature, they're like, you're talking about it like thematically or structurally yeah. academically. Yeah. This is the Bible as literature as like an object. It's like having like James Joyce in yeah. your house. Like it makes you seem smart whether or not you actually read so, it. So, you know, you were talking about it being like an airport paper book, but I actually was like so freaking curious cuz I mean, if y'all remember, it was expensive to get the Bible. Did you do the yes, conversion? I did. Oh my God. So it was shocking. 40 and $50 in 1968. And so I did the conversion, like I went online and that would have been like $341 and 15 cents or $426 and yeah. 43 cents okay. today. 
Maybe it's less like a paperback and more like those like really predatory um, infomercials that target old people who are yes. awake at like 3 a.m. Yeah, I don't know what a reverse mortgage is, but if they have to go on television and make a commercial with Tom Selleck saying it's not a scam to take old people's money, that just convinces me that it's a it's scam to take right, right. old people's <laughs> money. One thing I thought was funny was that the Maisel's brothers um, actually were salesmen uh, before they started making movies. I, I don't know what they were selling, but like probably some, you know, the same way that like when we were all in college, uh, it was popular to sign up on Craigslist to like sell knives. Yeah, those Cutco yeah. knives. Yeah. <laughs> like they probably did something like that. That was more high school times, but there were still weird sketchy dudes in high school selling knives. And I was like, what? I'm not buying a knife from you. You're like 18. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. I like that they had that angle where it's like, it didn't really matter what these guys were selling. And I think that's where the documentarians are coming from is they're shooting it as if, you know, they're selling like a vacuum or something. Yeah. Kind of levels it out a little bit, even though the sales pitch has this sort of like inherent moral value to it beyond it just being an appliance. Yeah. And I think it was interesting, you know, we see the first business meeting that they're at where the boss is like, pull up your bootstraps. We're a family. I'll fire you. But then they go to that conference in Chicago and there's that guy very like devoutly like talking about the Bible and oh did you did you buy that from that guy no I did the, not the doctor oh, no. Mauritius or whatever oh okay, okay no I did not I'm just like laughing because it's like on the one hand it's like make the money but on the other hand we're gonna still to the same people they're going to try and sell like the morality of it oh uh, you can see on their faces too like this is bullshit yeah, can yeah. I get out of here <laughs> their faces are just like every like body who's like ever worked in anything spaces when they have to go to a big conference it's just like Ugh. yeah they're true believers there like that's for sure but yeah. it ain't them no <laughs> i think this movie for just being shot like day-to-day things and not a super large cute crew like i think this movie is beautiful like i think the lighting yeah everything looks so good and i'm just like how do you do it and the scan that's on criterion channel right now is a pretty recent restoration too yeah. so it, look, it looks really clean and you know nice stark yeah it looks great i will say the like cinema verite like hangout film structure of it to kind of wear on me a little bit whereas like i find the subjects of gray gardens endlessly fascinating oh, and i can yes. hang out in their little raccoon palace as long as there's more footage of it they can feed me like the raccoons i will stay around yeah but i don't know that these four guys are like my guys you know like uh towards like the last 30 minutes i was not bored necessarily but i was like this could wrap up at any minute and i wouldn't know any more in 10 minutes than i knew 10 minutes ago you know, like, yeah. I was like, I've kind of hit a wall where I was like, I kind of got everything out of this I'm going to get. It's doing like a dolly in shot, right? Except it's it's not, but only metaphorically. And you're just slowly dollying in on Badger. Yeah. As like, he oh, yeah. really starts to, because I, I, I think that it intentionally starts with it's like, hey, it's these guys and they've got it rough, but they're still chucking along and hey they're gonna go to florida and maybe it'll be a good time they'll warm up or whatever and then it just slowly badger gets worse and worse at it and it's that's the tragedy of it is the irony is that it's like watching it, it's like a character that you would write it's like a character who feels like a character and not as much as he feels like a real person because it would be such a great characteristic of a character in a novel to be trying so hard to keep from drowning that they drown themselves. I have to assume Gil from The Simpsons was modeled off for him. I, I think yeah. that Gil was like at least intentionally modeled on a character from Glen Gary, Glen Ross. I buy that. But I would bet ten dollars that the writers who do a lot of uh, of Gil have seen this movie. The Harvard graduates who work on The Simpsons writers team. <laughs> I'm sure they have seen this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even as his story gets grimmer and grimmer, I still was laughing. Right. <laughs> yeah. My biggest laugh was him driving around and uh, a very patriotic version of uh, This Land is Your Land played over the car radio. And it was the darkest joke to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life is stranger. Yeah. yeah. I like that they just like have this intervention. They're like, you're going to go with him. To go make a sale, and he totally ruins that sale. Like that oh, whole scene, so I was impatient. just like cackling. <laughs> like 
it's just like nobody has any money all of this is hard everybody has it hard and my god the dire straits of these people yes yeah that they interact with where they're like i know that a dollar bought more then but they're still like i can't afford a dollar a week and it's like kid yeah a dollar you know then was eight dollars and 53 cents today like that's not cheap also this is one of those movies i can smell just everybody's constantly smoking all the time oh my god you know, I it's all it's been two and a half years since I quit and I haven't had a craving like that, except while watching this movie in a long time. Oh no, I'm so sorry. You know that they were sweating out the cheapest rot gut alcohol yes. you've ever tasted too. Oh my god. And then they were like constantly on the road and like you know they smell yes. just like jock sweat. <laughs> Bunch of men who don't bathe. At no point do they ever mention getting their suits cleaned. Mm-hmm. That's never like a thing that happens. There's, and you know, they're talking about everything. They would have yeah. talked about going to the dry cleaners if they had ever gone to the dry cleaners. Yeah. I loved Badger getting lost on the streets of Apalaika. So oh, funny. Because yeah. it's like, yeah, I've been to towns like that. There are a bunch of them in Louisiana yes. where like nothing makes any sense. Whenever he said he was looking for 131st Street, like the, the, when he said that for the first time, I was like, what? Yeah. This town does have not have 131 streets. streets. Yeah. There's no way on earth that this place has that many streets. And it, and it, and they didn't. It sound it seems like they only had five or six streets with numbers and they just varied very wildly. That was another thing from Tree of Wood and Clogs I was thinking about was like how the priests are kind of in on it <laughs> cuz the priests give out their targets to go Oh yeah, yeah. Pedal Bibles too. It's like this weird little like structure. So I'm wondering like if the priests get bribed or like some kind of like kickback or something. And then also, you know, it's endorsed by this Catholic press with pictures of the Vatican. I imagine that was a very like touchy, daring way to talk about religion when this came out. The same way that in Marjo where he like he breaks it down to the like hippies on the crew, basically how to act uh, when like, you know, they're around straights. There's kind of like a um, man behind the curtain reveal about like the Bible business here that I I assume was like, you know, a hot button issue at the time. Yeah, I mean, my God, in 2007, they were boycotting the Golden Compass and yeah. not because it was bad, just because of what it was. Yeah. Although it was bad. But I grew up in a church that did have like a financial element to it, like the church that I went to that was a mega church and, you know, I was forced to go to the school that was part of the church. They had like an alcove where you could like purchase sermons and all of that. And that's not terribly uncommon because even some of the smaller churches that we would go to, like my grandparents moved around a lot. So we would go to like whatever Baptist church they were attending in whatever town they had just moved to. So it, it doesn't seem that out of the ordinary for me that the, you know, the Bible sellers could go to the church and be like, hey, deacon, father, whatever, can we just put up like a stand up where, you know, people can fill out an index card with their name and address so that we can follow up with them to sell Bibles. But I also wouldn't put it past the Catholics to do anything. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I grew up Catholic. Uh, they're my number one enemy always. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to defend them. Everybody <laughs> I know who's uh, grown up Catholic and is very much not an is very much like they're my enemy. So there's the number one thing I'm most bitter about in my life. Without a doubt, I have a chip on my shoulder about like the religious stuff I was raised with in a way that I do not hold the grudges about. I anything hear about else. other people's religious upbringings, and I'm like, oh, thank God I was raised like in a weird Episcopalian church where there were like gay people and stuff. Like, <laughs> may have been raised by crazy people in the South, but. Not in that way. It makes me so happy. And then I watch things like this and the tree of wood clogs and I hear like my friends talk and I'm like, oh. You know, I found a way to make peace with some of that for me. And it was mostly through rapture movies. And I, so I don't know what to tell you as the Catholic equivalent. Well, I watch a lot of pornography. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Helps. (laughs) That's me rebelling still. Yeah. I loved Badger just driving around and singing Fiddler on the Roof yes. song. Where he's like, if I were a rich man, la dee da dee da He doesn't know anything but yeah. that lyric, but that's the only one that matters to him. Yeah. I did like how 
the slice of life element of it lended itself to including like extremely random pieces of pop culture ephemera, not just Fiddler on the Roof, but that weird orchestral warped tape version of the Beatles. Oh yes, that was that was so wild. That reminded me of them playing like throbbing gristle or skinny puppy or whatever at uh guantanamo bay yes. at top volume like that guy's just tormenting this salesman because he's like getting money out of yep. his life uh and he's like well if you're gonna do that i'm gonna assault you with the worst version of the beatles you've ever heard it was awful there's something like you were talking about like the slice of life quality of it like as much as like it's thematically daring i think there's something it's going for here that would have been more daring at the time as well we're like I saw somewhere that they said they were trying to make the first nonfiction feature film. I don't know what that means. Oh, as opposed to like a documentary. So the difference is like the difference between like journalism because it was a Truman Capote inspired thing. Okay. So you've heard about how, or maybe I'm going to go ahead and if if you haven't, Truman Capote called In Cold Blood the first nonfiction novel. Mm. Okay. And that it's not necessarily a fictionalization of true events. So it's sort of like a Romana Clef, which is like a, you know, a, a fictionalized version of a person's life with very thinly veiled allegories. It's like if you wrote a Romana Clef that actually wasn't disguised at all, and you wrote it not just journalistically, but with the richness of prose that you would expect from literature. Right. So what they're saying with this is like, there is journalism before this, there's documentary before this, but this is like a film with a capital F that just happens to be nonfiction. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But do you think they were the first people to do that? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, honestly, probably. That's so strange to think of. Cause like, yeah, we're so awash in that now we're like, a lot of documentaries are entertaining. Infotainment. <laughs> it's like the worst version of it. I have a hard time, though, because, you know, I was thinking about it. And I think a trend in a lot of documentaries today is more like to present itself like it's on like Discovery Channel or something rather than a documentary in its own right. You could mistake this for a parody. Yes. Or like, a um, yeah. yeah, you could mistake this for like the documentary now version of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm sure they have done this movie. I didn't look it up, but I they, they did. did. Yeah, <laughs> and I had seen that before. I've seen that one. I did see the Grey Gardens one. The Grey Gardens one. I think we've mentioned this before, but it's so good that there are times where I'm remembering it and I can't remember if it's Grey Gardens or the parody. Yeah. It's so well done. <laughs> really and the documentary now version of this one is also very well done because it is stylistically and narratively and visually, it's so distinct Mm-hmm. it's it's almost like playing t-ball like it's just it's just there it's just waiting for you to smack the leather off of it not to get so butch or anything but <laughs> it's lobbed right over the plate you know for all, the, all, all our sports fans out there the big game's coming big up game yeah that one they're globe salesmen as opposed to bible salesmen <laughs> so they're able to parody a lot of the like specific things about like oh it'll be great for your child's education it'll be great to have it around they'll learn so much just from it being in the house you know that sort of thing i will say they did make those bibles look really good yeah it seemed pretty sweet they were leather bound they had full color reproductions of renaissance paintings for all that we can say about what they're doing and who's behind it and who's to blame and whether it's a grift and it's a pyramid scheme. The product they were selling looked very durable. It's probably likely that the ones we saw in this movie being sold are probably still in those families today. They're still around somewhere. Yeah. Also, the Catholic Encyclopedia, well, they were talking about like communism, what it has to do with Catholicism, and it's going to be near in the seas. And I was just like laughing. Because we all want Catholicism's take on communism. I mean, you can't afford not to hear that to protect your children. You know, as someone, again, you know, from the perspective of someone who grew up like deep, deep in this sort of like church ideology and like this depth of like commitment to religion where that's normal, you know, many people that I knew either through the church or just through school or like my grandparents, my dad's parents, they had all of these Hal Lindsey books and all of these rapture books and many like reference Bibles and Bible concordances and like Bible dictionaries where like, if there was something that you needed to know the Bible's position on, you could go to your Smith's 
or your Cofields, like, you know, Bible concordance and look up, I don't know, usury. And it would give you the verses that were related to it. So it makes sense to me that the Catholics, because they have a large scholarship tradition that is like very, like has a continuance. Because like no church that I went to had any history before like the 1900s, right? They all trace themselves back to like the rapture ideologies that first like emerged around right before the the great disappointment, as they call it. So it makes sense to me that the Catholics would have an encyclopedia. It's very funny to me that they would try to keep it updated and modernized. And I'm very curious about what the Catholic Reference Bible did say, or their encyclopedia did say about communism. Because the guy who was talking, he didn't seem to be disparaging it much. Which is interesting, because I'm pretty sure is bad news, considering that communism is very anti-church. Yeah, and anti-salesman. Yeah, anti-salesman as well, so... Maybe he was just looking forward to that that revolution. And then you have that communist uh, slash patriotic American um, Rorschach anthem, uh, This Land is Your Land, playing on the radio yes. to further confuse things. <laughs> Where people hear what they want to hear in that. Why, they sure do. Really, really do. <laughs> there was something about the patriotic arrangement of that that was like so perversely funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't let that go. Yeah, I mean, it's a darkly funny scene. It boggles my mind to think that at a point in time, you know, where that we had film cameras, that you could just like turn on the radio and hear like that, you know, like not as part of a special like 4th of July program, but like here's just an orchestration of a patriotic song playing on the radio. And afterwards, we're going to listen to some John Philip Sousa hits. It is like a fascinating look into, because this is something that I think about every time that I like take a drive across, you know, in more than one state or even just like an intrastate drive, is that you see all of these turnoffs and these like exits for these cities that have these like fascinating names. And, you know, you can kind of like guess at what the town used to be based on the etymology where it's like, oh, this must have been where they brought the wool to sell because it's called Woolington or whatever. That's a terrible example, but you you get the gist, I'm sure. And all of those places now have no cultural identity because it's all been Walmarts and McDonald's and, you know, Wendy's along the interstate for like our entire lifetimes now. Like for a place in middle America to still have any kind of cultural identity is pretty rare all things considered, when you think about how many little barely populated dots there are on the atlas of the United States. As soon as you leave like the confines of the city, like even just going to Metairie outside New Orleans, it's like, yeah. this could be fucking anywhere in America. It's anywheresville, USA, all up and down this land that is your land and my land from sea to shining sea. It's been corporatized and commodified and consumerized and capitalized the long and short of it for as long as the three of us have been alive like i said and so not only is this like a time capsule of an occupation which will not exist soon door-to-door salesmen generally and bible salesmen very specifically just as much as it is like a time capsule of like this is a place where this city actually you know Even though this middle of nowhere city full of like people with no real like investment in arts or culture, at least they lived somewhere weird, somewhere eccentric, somewhere that had something going for it other than just this is where people congregated. And now there's a city there with no connection to the land or its old identity or anything like that. So this movie like really captures a lot of stuff that is gone yeah it contains a lot of things that we can't imagine existing anymore and which the people in it probably never imagined not existing our bibles don't even look this good anymore you can still get one for that looks that good if you're gonna pay 340 dollars for it you know what i haven't gone looking so i I can't make blanket statements like that i'm sure there's somebody (laughs) who would sell one to you i'm buying too much uh, vintage pornography in san francisco record stores to afford (laughs) the 300 (laughs) dollars I support you in purchasing that instead. But just in (laughs) case you you ever decide 
to convert. <laughs> there are still fancy, expensive Bibles yeah, to obtain. There are. Well, it should be no surprise, especially since I already mentioned it, that um, Salesman is available to stream on the Criterion channel and on HBO Max for now. I believe Canopy as well. I'm sure your local library has a DVD copy. It's out there. Speaking of great films that are on the Criterion channel, but you can also find all over the place, uh, we're talking about the public domain noir detour next episode. One of the better, sweatier noirs from the 40s. Uh, This was James's pick, and the rest of us all picked uh, 1940s noir blind spots, I believe, uh, that we're all going to catch up with for that episode. A lot of like 80 to 90 minute movies that uh, get in and get out and a uh, reek of financial desperation the same way that Salesman does. Morning, Mrs. Johnson. The shirt sent me around. Let me slip my foot inside your door and set my suitcase down. Got something for your comfort when you're feeling all. Words of Jesus, and it comes in white or gold. 